Welcome to Citizen Architect, student-run podcast. Today, our guest is Sean Anderson. Sean Anderson is an alum of Cornell's BRC program, got his MRC at Princeton, and a PhD in art history from UCLA. He has done research looking at architectural spaces in Africa and South Asia, focusing on borders as well as impacts of colonization on places such as Eritrea, Libya, Australasia, and Sri Lanka. He held a teaching position at University of Sydney in Australia and has also taught in India, Afghanistan, and the United Arab Emirates, Morocco, and Italy. Sean joins us today as the Associate Curator in the Department of Architecture and Design at the Museum of Modern Art, NYC. Thank you for joining us, Sean. My pleasure, George. Thanks for having me. Of course. Today, our topic is going to be on curation and architecture and the role we as architects play in larger institutions. So you have like a wide range of experience. Could you talk about how you got into education and curation from architecture? I, I think um, I'd like to start by saying that being a curator is like being an omnivore. We consume everything and we are interested in everything, or at least I am. So in this case, uh, I would say that when I, even when I was a student at Cornell, I was taking as many courses outside of the School of Architecture as I was in. And I was always quite interested in thinking about and looking at other parts of the world, not just say a New York City centric view of, of the world or of, of architecture uh, more specifically. And so my path to uh, the Museum of Modern Art is certainly not a direct one. And my experiences um, around the world were never say, I'm going to do this now because it makes sense that I've done the previous things, but rather they were in essence always trying to find a job and trying to find a place to spend more time to do the work that I was interested in and, and, and still am interested in doing. So yes, you, you listed a number of places that I have worked and lived from which I, am, uh, I gained and continue to gain so much. And I'm very fortunate to have lived there in, in these places. So I always had a kind of multiple, say a multiple outlook. I can't think of a better way of describing it at the moment. Maybe I'll get there in a minute. In which my interest in the practice of architecture was intersecting a practice that also was invested in theater, was invested in art production, was invested in history and theory, and was very keen to kind of draw outside of the bounds of what I was taught uh, was architecture. And I feel that my work in the museum is very much uh, of the same, is conceived around the same ideas in that my role as an architecture curator is at once trying to elevate or amplify ideas that are specific to architecture but at the same time, those ideas that uh, interface with and problematize and uh, sometimes maybe undercut questions that are found outside of architecture, maybe even found in art production. 
And so I feel very important, very strongly that architecture must be situated within the larger sphere of cultural influences, of global influences, uh, of, and artistic influences. And to that end becomes a kind of litmus or framework or platform, however you want to describe it, for thinking about our relationship to the world. Yeah, I think it's important to note how diverse, at least architecture in a sense, like touches in and all these little things. And I think it, it, it's pretty common, I feel, or at least in my own experience of like people having multiplicities of like interests and stuff that bring them into these like different settings or, you know, working in a firm and then doing interior design or doing something like, yeah. I don't know, innovation and in banking or something, you know, design thinking. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think it, you know, what what the beauty so, of central education uh, allows for is incredibly high degree of analytical thinking and critical thinking. And this is why I think architects are, by and large, invaluable to other disciplines, other careers, other roles in the world besides that of just making, say, buildings or, or retrofits or whatever we want to do, but rather that we, are, we have the ability, we have the capacity to observe and, and to consider the broader relationships and systems that are at work that inevitably produce architecture. Yeah, definitely. And I think that like, cause it can get us in so many places, it, it brings us everywhere. And I think especially it brings us to points of like leaders, I think in a certain sense, because like this way of thinking is, is I think very, very helpful and intuitive, at least for problem solving in the grander scheme of things like people working in politics or, you know, larger city institutions or political institutions or academic institutions. And, you know, uh, moving to this theme of like uh, institutional settings, um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about your experience within institutions, like how you worked in a university and now working in a museum. And if you think it's limiting or furthering, at least in your own career and thinking? It's a good, hmm, yeah. I think inevitably everything we do is political. Uh, so uh, politics undergird most everything we do as individuals, as communities, as societies, uh, because politics um, not the way that it has been written for the past four years, but in general, politics are the ways in which humans interact and question and observe in those interactions um, in time and space and economics and, and so forth. So if we begin from a point of thinking about relationships, individual, bodily, spatial, identity, et cetera, that relationships are in as much built as they are designed, as they are forged across spectra 
um, of time and, and people, then inevitably we must then consider architecture as, as being implicated in those politics and those relationships. So I, I come from a family of teachers. And so uh, teaching was very much in, in the blood, in the family. And as much as I have always enjoyed teaching and being a part of academic community, there was a point I was in Australia at this time. I was the undergraduate director uh, of a school of architecture, Australia's oldest. And I realized at, at a moment, very particular moment, that, that I had the potential to step out of formal academia, but still be in a position of I wouldn't say teaching in the, in the conventional sense, but being able to communicate ideas about architecture. And I applied for the job at MoMA and, and it, there's a long story attached to that um, because I went to the wrong website and found this job posting. And I thought I was in the middle of applying for many teaching jobs, none of which I got. And it just occurred to me actually, while I was applying for the MoMA job, in fact, that, wait a minute, this is a description of everything that I have always enjoyed and wanted my own work to embody about relationships across the institution, across disciplines, time periods, and, and so forth, that I don't necessarily, or wasn't necessarily able to communicate through teaching or even my writing. And so, I mean, it's it, personally, it was very strange in some ways that I have always taught studio more than history classes. And to this day have always taught more studio uh, than, than history classes. Um, even though I my formal practice of architecture is say limited to a number of little projects and, and places that I've worked on my own uh, around the world. And so my teaching in and of itself was, is on, in some way rooted in a desire to communicate these ideas and these connections that I have always found to be uh, important to thinking about architecture. And then on the other hand, that teaching was always transmitted or most of the time transmitted through design and thinking about the built environment. When I reached the museum, very fortunate to have reached the museum, um, I had worked in a museum previously as a graduate student and enjoyed it immensely, but it never even occurred to me at that time that, oh, wait a minute, I could be a curator. I thought for some, somehow you had to have very specialized kind of credentials in order to work in a museum. When I would argue actually today, it's more essential that you have a broad set of relationships and experiences to, to work in a museum. So when I reached the museum and I realized that actually a curator working in an institution like ours is inevitably speaking from not only a position of privilege in, in, in MoMA's case, but also one of 
education, of advocacy, of writing uh, and and translating and conceiving of ideas that will be shared with a much larger audience than I would ever have had as a professor, began to tell me something that as much as our institutions, pedagogical and teaching institutions are rooted in the transmission and the translation of ideas, that the museum too has to be considered in a very similar way and yet we reach very different audiences and very different uh, groups of people at all ages and at all stages of, of life in a very in a much more pointed and direct way than say my teaching would be. So I feel very honored in a way to have had the experiences in an educational institutions and then to work in uh, also a different kind of educational institution called a museum. Um, they share similar properties, but they don't necessarily share in similar missions. Awesome, yeah. Um, I don't know, funny, funny enough, this is like, maybe this is more of an aside. It makes me think a bit about when I was, I was doing field work for, um, a research project that was dealing with like seals, um, random, I know. But, yeah. um, so when I, when I did this research, a lot of the time when we, we sometimes get boat tours and teach people a lot. And, um, I, I have to learn, I learned all this history of Harbor and gray seal populations in the uh, New Hampshire, Maine region, because that's where the study is taking place and we we're photographing them. And it, people even going on a boat, looking at these animals, I was able to tell their story. I think, while it's not really a museum necessarily, I think it speaks to the point of the importance of like telling a story and curating a story through, whether it be history or artifacts or the lived um, experience of something like, you know, a seal right there. I think it's, it's really important how, at least when we are in these positions, how we communicate these ideas. And yeah, and I think it's really interesting you pointing out how they are both educational institutions, but one's a little different than the other. Yeah. And so uh, I want to touch upon um, what you think, like what role you think you hold as a curator in telling important stories, especially those in architecture, because I think they, I mean, at least from what I've learned so far, it's like, vast there are so many stories especially important to talk about you know marginalized voices especially in architecture when you know we get exposed to learning about people like Corbusier and stuff mm -hmm. who people praise but then you realize they're like not so good you yeah. know um I, I love this idea of of telling stories I think that's a really that's a really brilliant way of of thinking about architecture because architecture whenever it was built or has been built or or designed um, doesn't have to be built it inevitably contributes to a set of stories not only about say a community or a society but of a period of time a, um, a moment in time that inevitably changes or transforms the ways in which we interact with and see 
that architecture, whatever form it takes. And I've always loved stories. I've always said, in fact, that uh, one of the roles of architects should be about sharing stories and relating stories with each other and using building as a means to tell stories. And so I, I even when I was an undergraduate at, at Cornell and, and I was thinking about working on my thesis, for instance, my thesis wasn't a building per se, but it was a set of stories about process of thinking about buildings. Dare I say more? I don't know. But um, what I feel like is that as storytellers then, as individuals that have the, the capability and, and the position in order to share those stories is one of great responsibility. Uh, it's um, and a responsibility that not only affects the ways in which individuals out in the world who will intersect with the museum, whether it's digitally or in person um, or in some other way, is related to or exposed to ideas and a history or a set of histories and ideas is incredibly daunting. It's incredibly, um, it's, a, it's an invaluable role. And when institutions, it doesn't matter how big or, or what have you, how much money they have, institutions in our societies have responsibilities that are not only about the bottom line, but about the individuals that and the communities that interface with them. And so my, my work um, in say a, a more social justice realm has, has been present, I think all along, except uh, in, in different forms. Um, and it was only when I reached say uh, Australia to some degree where my work began to really put money where it's, my mouth is, right? That we, we couldn't, as, uh, as architects, as scholars, talk about these uh, ideas without translating them and trying to build upon the stories that we are not only witness to, but many, in many cases, most cases, implicated by. And so my, uh, I would say that the work that I began then in Australia around refugees and asylum seekers, which began really as a curiosity around why, and, and this was at a moment um, in Australia in which uh, this was very much a political issue, very front and center, but no architects, no architecture schools, no one was even really paying attention to it. It was kind of located only within the political and, and, and social realm. It was at that moment and juncture at which I felt it absolutely necessary to take what I was reading and actually look at it more specifically and in person. And so the asylum seeker issue had been going on since the early 90s uh, in Australia. And it was very much uh, a question not only about 
the influx of, of individuals into the country that was trying to very much control how many people were coming. But the fact that many people were coming on boats and dying en route, um, perishing in the sea, or arriving on the shores of Australia and mainly the islands that are in the far western part uh, of, the, of the continent, and then um, more or less being taken back to the war-torn countries from which they came or the, the plights uh, in which they came. To me, this not only was a spatial phenomenon, uh, but a, a, human just, a human and social justice phenomenon that had to be and should be addressed by, by architects. And so that really began a multi-year uh, investigation for me uh, and then also with a colleague of mine at the time and we began to document the, the asylum seeker, what are called processing centers that are built at hundreds of millions of dollars in Australia to more or less um, place these people, men, women, and children uh, in centers kept indefinitely. And it was a means to deter people from leaving where they were coming from, the conditions from which they were coming from, to come to Australia. So, a long story short, uh, what we did was begin to document these centers. Um, I went to the island of Nauru, which is the smallest, but uh, used to be the richest country per capita in the world. It's the smallest, it's two miles wide, this island in the middle of the Pacific. Um, Manus Island in Papua New Guinea, Christmas Island in the far west of Australia, and then a number of, of locations around the continent as a means to recognize that architects and designers were designing these centers that aren't prisons, but act like prisons, as spaces that are outside of law because the Australian parliament had deemed that anyone who arrived on the continent of Australia had not actually arrived on the continent of Australia and they had done this legally. So um, meant that you, they could do whatever they wanted to with these, with these people. And what you find is just systematic oppression, if you will, of, of people who were just trying to seek a better life uh, elsewhere. And that work just expanded uh, and continues to expand uh, for me. And when I arrived at the museum, it was the first exhibition that I proposed because the history of refugees is quite strong in America, especially then in the context of the art world and the Museum of Modern Art. So there is a long history of looking at the ways in which refugees have been treated, have been um, taken in, um, have been observed uh, and so forth by, the, by, by our institution, but also by the, the country itself. And of course, we can't look away from what has been happening here for the past four years in terms of our Southern border and the individuals, again, trying to reach a new life and a, a better place.
here in the United States. I don't know if I answered any of your questions. <laughs> no, I think so. I mean, I, I think it really speaks to the importance of telling of these stories and also like, in a way, I think expressing their importance, or at least, uh, I mean, you talk so thoroughly about all of these specific issues and refugees in Australia and there's refugees, you know, everywhere in the world, like, mm. at least where my family's from in Greece, there's a big refugee um, situation there where they have so many people coming in and especially here in America in our Southern border and how 45 has handled the situation was horrendous. Um, yeah. To say the least. I think, yes, to say the least. Um, and and I think it, it it's really telling again of our importance and like how we need to use our tools and our positions and our networks to further uplift these voices, I would say, Absolutely. Um, and document them and make sure, you know, people are listening and people are being taught. And I think that's a great thing, at least I've noticed with the, some architects um, that I've encountered in school or even not, um, one example is like Esra's um, uh, Critically Now series talking about really important issues, uh, lectures in history. And so... And Samia. Yeah. Yeah. And Samia. Yes, of course. And I was wondering, you know, looking more specifically um, at uplifting voices and mm -hmm. telling stories, if you could talk about your your upcoming exhibit with mm. uh, Mabel Wilson and Ariel Dion Krosnick. Yeah. Reconstructions, Architecture and Blackness in America. Absolutely. I, I, it's, it's funny. I, I'll, I'll be honest. When I came into the museum, I did not realize that I would start doing a lot of projects that were polemic in nature that I, I really thought that I would work on projects that were more, maybe centered on building histories and 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 uh, which are equally as as valuable and a, of interest to me still um and so i, I look at like so insecurities which uh, was my first uh, exhibition was the exhibition that looked specifically at transits the idea of transits and the notion of shelter and how shelter changes by virtue of these transits and forced displacements um, that are still happening around the world, as you rightly say, that that so many, you know, the UNHCR, the High Commission for Refugees, is it's over 72 million individuals around the world are being forcibly displaced from their homes today. And we no doubt have to look to the future and of climate change as augmenting that number. And when we look at these displacements, architects have generally not been involved in these questions um, historically. And uh, I'm a very big advocate and always state to members of the United Nations um, when I have spoken with people uh, at the UN, very fortunate again to have had that opportunity, but I always say, please involve architects in these, these discussions because they're essential. Anyway, that project for me 
set off a set of questions, not only about what really hasn't been addressed in the museum and in our department. So the, the architecture and design department at MoMA is the oldest in the world. It was the first department in the world to be centered in a museum uh, that would collect uh, items and, and objects from architects and designers. So that, that started 91 years ago, more or less. And it really began a, a, a research process for me to look at what had been left out. We'd like to say sometimes in, in museum parlance as uh, what are the gaps? And to my knowledge and thinking, there are always going to be gaps no matter what. And we can't just smooth over those gaps. We can attempt to address them, but we're, we'll always have gaps because there's no such thing really as a complete museum. Otherwise we wouldn't have them. We have encyclopedic museums like the Met, for instance, or the Louvre that attempt to do that. But even um, in those institutions, architecture plays a very minor role. So for me, it was really important to think about from uh, early on what, you know, what had been left out. And I was very keen to think about architects in particular who had not been present in, in our histories, in the department's history, in the museum's history. And just a little bit of research started to tell me and reveal to me that the museum had very little, if any, exhibitions that dealt with, with Black America, with Black life in America, with the architecture of, of, say, the rural South, and so forth. And the more I started to read and, and research, the more I realized that actually we hadn't ever really shown the work of Black architects either. African-American architects, African diasporic architects, African architects, never shown. And this was quite eye-opening for me but it also began to pose a set of questions at a moment in which the museum was also reckoning with, with this absence on a broader scale. And uh, I was quite fortunate to meet uh, the scholar at the University of Chicago, uh, Darby English, who was also a curator uh, at the museum at the time. And he was working with Charlotte Barat on a book called Among Others, Blackness at MoMA in which there's a survey of all of the works by, by black artists um, in the collection, in the permanent collection. And at the same time, Darby had commissioned an essay uh, by Mabel Wilson to look at architecture and design. And it just so happened that that was the moment that I was also doing this research. Um, I hadn't thought of it yet as an exhibition and uh, Mabel and I ended up having these long conversations and I had conversations with Darby and Charlotte. And, and um, what we came to this realization was that there was a profound absence of these histories in the museum, especially in, in uh, architecture. 
And what did this mean? The process of making an exhibition at the museum is, is long. I don't need to go into to that, but needless to say, I think with the kind of the profound encouragement and, and support of, of Mabel and Darby and, and others, um, what, what became reconstructions is probably one of the most extraordinary things uh, I feel so grateful to be a part of. We formed a group, an advisory committee of around 20 scholars, historians, lawyers, poets, artists, thinkers, to share with us um, what they felt were the essential questions to be asking when we're looking at a legacy of, of profound violence toward Black America and Black Americans. Um, and at the same time, recognizing that how do we elevate or amplify, as you said, uh, the voices that have long been contributing to um, these ideas, not of segregation, but of, of, of architects and, and artists. Um, and so with the advisory committee and with a kind of structure that we, that Mabel and I and Ariel had started to develop, it, we began a very collaborative. We wanted it to be very collaborative from the start that no decision was ever really going to be made by one person. Um, and so by that, by that standard that the curator uh, was all of us rather than just one. Uh, or two, and that the ideas and the narratives and the questions that we presented to the advisory committee were then in a way translated for the group of architects that we inevitably chose uh, as, as, a, as a group. Um, so I didn't choose those, Mabel didn't choose those, we, we chose them uh, as a group. And we began then with the ambition that we wanted to challenge all of the, the structures that have been in place for so long for governing who makes architecture in as much as how architecture is, say, commissioned or discussed or conceived. And so we didn't give any sites, we didn't give any specific typologies, we didn't there was no problem necessarily to resolve, but rather a set of questions and histories to address. And we knew from the beginning that we had to work uh, across America. So this was not just a New York City centric project as previous instances might reveal, um, because our exhibition is part of a series called Issues in, Archi in Contemporary Architecture. Uh, and so um, the only thing that we did was in a way coalesce our ideas in what we called a matrix. And the matrix includes scales, spaces, and then cities. And then the individual architects chose which city they wanted to work in. 
and they worked across this matrix that we conceived around scales. And scales are things like kitchen table, remembrance, beauty, liberation, and so forth. So the scale wasn't, you know, design a bathroom or a kitchen or, or so forth, um, or a square footage. Uh, and what we wanted to reveal in as much as extend what we believed were to be the narratives that were inherent within looking at the histories of these cities, uh, historically up until the present. And so that's where we are. We're um, in the final stages of each of the architects developing the, the physical works that will be shown in the exhibition, and uh, which is, I think, perhaps for them, I don't want to speak for them, nerve-wracking. It's certainly nerve-wracking for us uh, because it means that we will soon be um, installing these works at a moment, not only in American history, uh, but also in the museum's history in which uh, the pandemic and the politics of the last four years have had a profound influence on the ways in which we think about things and, and do things. So it's rather daunting, I have to say. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a huge undertaking and I think it's amazing, like the collaboration and thoroughness, especially with assembling the, the panel. I mean, I don't don't know a ton about you know museum curation but it seems like it's going to be great and i think telling all of these these black stories through architecture um and exhibition is really important especially right now as you said the pivotal time in america especially with the black lives matter protests and the presidency situation um <laughs> I, I would mm. say too you know one thing that I really would like to emphasize is that we began this project in earnest two and a half years ago. And so the transformations that have been happening uh, in society, in American society, but also in, around the world, especially then in light of the George Floyd protests and other protests, uh, Black Lives Matter, we could never have predicted that, and we could never have predicted that a global pandemic would um, kind of catalyze that movement. But in retrospect, it makes perfect sense because what we're seeing and what we have been witness to is that the, the systems that are in place or have been in place in our society are so fragile and often are a house of cards built by, by monetary interests uh, that are so far away from say you and I and, and others that what the pandemic brought was a, a very close look at ourselves and the institutions that we interact with or don't uh, and almost every kind of, say, external body that we um, as a society interact with. 
And all of it has come to bear and all of it is precarious. And it just, it revealed to me over these, over these multiple years in order to make this exhibition, that if we do not think collaboratively and if we do not take care of each other, and if we do not, if we don't recognize that all of these systems that we have put in place and hierarchies, mind you, which are colonial in nature, basically, if we don't pay attention to them, we will be repeating them and still falling prey to them uh, in the future. Sorry, I got on my soapbox for a moment, but... Um, no, that's great. And the past year in itself has been a whirlwind of various yeah. different events. And, you know, some, I think now much more documented than they have been in the past. And that's the important distinction, at least when we, we talk about everything going on. And in the exhibit itself, or maybe exhibition in general, or at least looking at this one coming up, um, these architects are telling stories or narratives or telling and giving importance of voices through work. And Absolutely. It makes me think of um, when Amanda Williams spoke in our class and how that was um, art and architecture teetering on this border. And I think both are so extremely powerful in, in shedding light and giving at least more spotlight, I guess. I don't know if that's really quite the right word, but I wonder, you know, in, in this exhibition, do you see these lines being blurred or uh, is is the media narrative and maybe not art versus architecture. Maybe it's a blending of the two. Um, mm. You know, is it what becomes the media in the, mm -hmm. these, um, yeah. I guess maybe, maybe soap, soapbox yeah. telling, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, so I think what, and I hope I have to say, um, that when, in, when visitors come to the museum, and hopefully in, at the end of February, um, we will have more visitors to the museum that we feel more comfortable moving around uh, these cities. We won't be in a lockdown, hopefully. Um, the ambition here is not to repeat the legacies or repeat the stories of redlining, of segregation, of, of anti-Black racism, of, of extreme violence. We, we're the, if we, that's not the, the ambition. Um, in fact, I would say that our exhibition um, for a visitor who doesn't necessarily know or recognize these histories, um, it's the stories that the individual projects tell that then across the 10 or 11 projects that we have begins to expand not only uh, a view of, of Black America, but also of the indelible relationship that architecture and the built environment have in constructing identities and constructing communities, um, but also the legacy of 
of the laws and um, and the government and the politics that supported the discrimination and segregation of of people and peoples, um, not only in the United States but across the world. These are all age-old um, practices that in the United States became translated as a fundamental us versus them mentality and, and black and white and, and so forth. Um, so the mediums through which these stories are communicated, however, tend to be on one hand, they run the gamut, first of all, but they, on the one hand, are rooted in um, architectural representation, meaning that they there are going to be models, architectural models, there are going to be material studies, there are going to be drawings, there are going to be collages. Um, so 2D, 2D and 3D work. On the other hand, Someone who comes to the exhibition thinking we're showing pictures of buildings are going to be disappointed because there aren't going to be many buildings, uh, if any, um, being shown, but rather uh, ideas about buildings, certainly, and ideas that have forged um, a relationship of history to those buildings um, very much, right? So each project is each of the, so we have 10, pro, I should have said earlier, we have 10, uh, 10 individual projects in 10 American cities and an 11th project, which was a special commission um, by an artist named David Hart, uh, who made a film uh, that is also going to be shown as part of the exhibition. Um, but each of these projects in their own way, not only tells a story about the specific context in which they are rooted, but I think also, and very much uh, a part of our, our ambition was that those stories then speak to a larger whole. And when you are in the galleries, you can look from one project and look across the space to another project and think about uh, the relationships that are present between them. Uh, and so you might think of them as 10 individual cities with 10 individual sets of problems and questions, but um, those questions and problems are inevitably shared by those 10 cities and in and, and different parts of their histories. Um, and yet all of those histories come to bear even to this day. Not there's, anti-black racism hasn't ended. It certainly, if we looked at the voting map uh, today, we would recognize that there is somehow a suicidal and a genocidal approach to American and Americans, uh, which is incredibly distressing. And so our exhibition hopes uh, that these stories, uh, these narratives, if you will, are as much about space and the definitions of space 
and the frameworks that are embodied by space, built space or unbuilt space, as they are about a, a profound recognition that um, the land on which we, we stand uh, to this day across America has been designed and uh, built on a basis of dividing people. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, and I think it, it just again, like reiterates the, the transcendence of so, so much of this practice, at least the importance of, you know, dipping into all of our pots and understanding the like relational aspects of history and architecture, art, space, design, migration, et cetera. Because I think at the end of the day, everything in its spatial iteration or spatial relation is, is really important to uh, at least understand what's going on and maybe giving us at least a footing or understanding or telling people, teaching people, whether it be in a school or a museum, how things got to where they were or are and how they can improve, hopefully, ideally, <laughs> ideally. Yeah. And yeah, and coming to a close. So at the end of every podcast, we ask our guests what they think a citizen architect is. Ooh, wow. You saved the hardest question for last? Uh, hmm. I think this may, may trail around. I don't have a, a simple direct answer to that. But I think over these last 15, 20 years in which I've been teaching and thinking and working, our relationship to each other uh, and to our communities and to the lands on which we stand and build and think are all connected. And they all have to be connected because we are from them and we circulate around them and through them. While we think about architecture at whatever level from first year until you're 90 years old uh, or older even, architecture is not only an extension of the world, but we build it, we, we design it. We are, uh, whether we're architects or not, we are, we are indelibly embedded in the built environment something we kind of forget sometimes that whether we're in a city or a town or in the middle of nowhere, the things around us have been designed and they have been built and they have been in a part of a system of decision-making and other processes that arrive in order to make the world in which we live. So, we have, as architects, we have an essential role to not only think about, but to help take care of each other. And if we don't, we are, we are we're doing each other a, a disservice. And to be a citizen is to be, to be located, it is to be 
involved. It is to be a part of a larger whole. It is also a privilege because so many people are uh, denied the right to citizenship. And citizenship also requires one to interface in the world in which they live. Uh, so I've tried to kind of outline what a citizen might be and what architects um, can do and should do. And I also, I will answer your question by thinking about and proposing ways in which I think architects can become better citizens and better architects in, in that sense. And I think that whether you have a, a large office, massive office, or even a small one, if you could devote part of your time and energies toward trying to resolve or respond to a condition or a problem that needs some resolution vis-a-vis problem solving and, and analysis and uh, relationships to relationships to civic duty or civics in general. If we could then expand that role to thinking about the environment more specifically and not just checking the boxes on a lead diagram or a net zero diagram, but actually thinking about what it means to build today or unbuild today, that at every stage from the inception of idea to its construction and then to the afterlife of whatever it is that you have constructed, whether it's on a piece of paper or an 80-story building, that your role as, uh, as an individual, as a uh, as an architect, as a creative person, as a thinker, wherever that process finds you and in whatever role that finds you, if you can then think about the implications of your decision-making uh, in a larger context, inevitably the built environment uh, and the environment may get better and we may resolve some of the problems that we inevitably also cause. So I think at the end of the day, a citizen architect is one who recognizes the implication of the implication and the complication of their role uh, in the making of a better world. That was great. <laughs> Thank you.